scary families taking the fright out of family life. Families can get scary. Of course, when a baby boomer here in America hears the expression, scary families, he or she probably thinks of two television shows that aired together all in the mid-60s. The Adams Family and The Monsters. You know, both shows were satires on two entertainment genres popular at the time, the family sitcom and the horror flick. I mean, think Leave it to Beaver meets Frankenstein. That's what was going on. Well, the monsters, they were a family of monsters. Blue-collar monsters who worked regular jobs, who lived semi-normal lives, with the exception of Grandpa living in the dungeon in the basement and young son Eddie the werewolf, with the exception of that, this was the all-American family, the Munsters. You know, it's interesting. The Munsters lasted just 70 episodes, but their house, Munster Mansion, has lived on. 1313 Mockingbird Lane has been seen in episodes of Murder, She Wrote, Desperate Housewives. Even the movie The Burbs was filmed with that house. Today, it's on exhibit at Universal Studios in California. On the other hand, the Adams family contained a cast of more eccentric characters. The Mr. and Mrs. Gomez and Morticia. Then there was the crazy Uncle Fester, who illuminated light bulbs by sticking them in his mouth. That was always a, a nice touch. And of course, the Frankenstein-like butler named Lurch, who would answer with that creepy, deep voice, you rang. Tell you a funny story. You know, it's one of my earliest childhood memories, in fact. <clears throat> the Adams Family made its television debut in 1964. I was just six years old. And being the Adams Family ourselves, I mean, we were inclined to watch. In fact, we named our dog Uncle Fester. And since we were listed in the phone book as the Adamses, I mean, for several weeks after the show's debut, we were bombarded with crank calls. I mean, smart Alex would call the house and, can I speak to Gomez? Is Morticia home? I'll never forget one night when the phone rang, my dad answered with his best lurch-like voice, you rang? It must have sounded authentic and pretty scary because from that point onward, at least in my memory, the calls completely stopped. Actually, the Adams Family began in 1938 as a comic strip authored by cartoonist Charles Adams. He even styled the Adams Family Mansion after the Victorian homes in his hometown of Westfield, New Jersey. How appropriate. Charles named his ghoulish characters the Adamses and located them in his own hometown in honor of his family. <laughs> and for good reason. For as we've been learning, there are times in everybody's family when life can get frightening. Hey, whether you're a nice, blue-collar, all-American family full of monsters like the Munsters, or whether you're a little more eccentric like the Adams family, hey, everybody's family life can at times get eerie and spooky. 
You know, we learned in week one that when people, namely dads, fail to step up and take responsibility, when they succumb to their fears and throw their family under the bus, the family is in danger and life gets very scary. In week two, we saw when leaders, namely husbands and parents, get paralyzed by guilt or when they prefer keeping the peace to standing on principle, or when they just prove weak and wimpish, the patients take over the asylum. And again, family life gets very, very scary. Well, this morning, we're going to examine the sin of favoritism. How that, too, can wreck and ruin a family. You see, a family that plays favorites will also turn very, very scary. As we've done in each week of our series, I want to whet your appetite by showing you a few photos of what I think are scary families. I'm doing this because I'm sure that most of you don't even know what a scary family looks like. I mean, you're from loving, kind, normal, healthy families. And so, just to get you in the mood, just to show you how other people live, I mean, here are a few examples of scary families. Photo number one, the good old family snake. Hey, kids, let's take a good family portrait with the snake around our necks. What are these people thinking? This, my friends, is a scary family. Here's a nice protective dad-to-be. There he is. Now, I know fatherhood stresses a guy out. I mean, this is serious business when you become a dad. But, I mean, this guy needs to lighten up a little bit. I mean, his daughter hasn't even been born, let alone started to date. I mean, that guy is scary. Well, you know, all parents can get a little overprotective. And they can put a squeeze on a kid. (laughs) To me, that's another scary family right there. And then finally, you wonder, you wonder what this older brother is doing to his two twin siblings. My, oh my, that looks scary as well. You want to know the whole story there. Well, today we're going to be discussing this kind of a thing. We're going to be discussing the danger of family rivalries. Turn in your Bible this morning to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to read verse 28. Genesis 25, verse 28. We're going to read a single verse, but we're really going to talk this morning about the bulk of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 25, verse 28 reads, And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And that, my friends... That single verse is all you really need to know about the family of Jacob to see the storm clouds brewing on the horizon. I mean, this is a family headed for problems. Favoritism is such an ugly sin. You know, it's probably life's most unconfessed sin. Most folks are guilty in one way or the other, and yet none of us like to admit our prejudice. Check out the cover of the October 3rd, 2011 edition of Time Magazine. It illustrates my point perfectly. The headline reads, Why Mom Liked You Best, 
the science of favoritism. There's a photo of three siblings with a piece of cake. But notice the girl in the middle, she's been served a bigger slice of cake. She's obviously her mother's favorite. But notice the little asterisk after the headline and the words to which it refers. The time editors hit the nail right on the head. You can't really read it, but it says, my mom liked you best, and the little asterisk, and then down in the corner of the cover, it reads, of course she would never admit it. And, and isn't that the parent's unspoken code? I mean, even if a mom or dad has a favorite, hopefully they'll never confess. My parents did a great job of avoiding partiality. When my mom bought Christmas presents, she kept track of her receipts. She made certain that she spent on me and my brother the exact same amount. She balanced it out to the penny. If she was a dime off, she went and bought the one lacking a licorice stick. She never wanted to give us a reason to accuse her of favoritism. This should be the goal of every parent. You know, when my kids were growing up, my wife always accused me of favoring my sweet, adorable, precious, can-do-no-wrong princess over my three gnarly, nappy, always-in-trouble little boys. But I never knew what she was talking about. Favoritism? Not me. No way. Well, admit it or not, one of the most lethal enemies a family faces is prejudice. Families that show favoritism set in motion dynamics that make for scary families. From the moment children are born, they begin to compete with the other siblings for their parents' limited attention. The child who wins his parents' favor often becomes arrogant and assumes a sense of entitlement. The less favored child grows up wondering why they weren't worthy of the love that was shed on the golden child. And this unleashes all kinds of detrimental forces between siblings. It's coming, maybe. Jealousies and anger and resentment <laughs> and hatred. It made it, didn't it? I mean, no one wins when a family plays favorites. A recent Newsweek magazine referenced a 2010 survey the author concluded, in all elements of the workplace, from hiring to politics to promotions, looks matter, and they matter hard. According to the article, 57% of hiring managers believe that an unattractive yet qualified job applicant would find it harder to get a job. 68% said that once hired, looks definitely affect the way that managers rate their employees' work performance. 66% of hiring managers wouldn't hire a significantly overweight person, and 84% wouldn't hire an elderly adult. To sum it up, we all have our prejudices. And as ugly as they are when they arise in the workplace, they are far more damaging when they occur in a family. That's why when you read Genesis chapter 25 verse 28 again, it sounds even scarier. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Wow, that sounds scary. The parents are playing favorites. Here are two speeding objects headed 
for a collision. Esau was a daddy's boy. When he was born, he looked like a bear cub. Verse 25 tells us that he was red as a beet and he was covered with hair. That's why they named him Esau. The word means hairy. He looked like a fur coat. Whereas Jacob was a mama's boy. Esau liked to hunt with dad while Jake hung out in the kitchen with his mother. Esau was a wild man. Jacob was a mild child. And the partiality that these parents set, show sets off a chain reaction of heartache and disintegration in this family. I mean, with the help of his mother, one day, Jacob steals his older brother's birthright. He pretends to be Esau. You see, by this point in his life, Jacob's old man Isaac, he was blind as a bat. And so Jacob, he covers his arms with fur and with animal skins so that when the dad goes to greet him, he thinks it's Esau. Isaac ends up giving Jacob the coveted blessing. And what does this intrigue do to the family? Well, Esau gets angry. He vows to kill Jacob. Rebekah hears the threat, and she sends her favored son away to escape his brother's vengeance. Jacob is supposed to lay low for a few days. He ends up gone for 20 years. Two decades of separation caused by favoritism. When you study through Genesis, you see a trend. One generation's mistakes get repeated by the next. It's been said, ignore the mistakes of history and you're destined to repeat them. It was certainly true of Jacob. He learned nothing from the devastating effects favoritism had on he and his brother. As soon as he's out on his own, Jacob takes partiality to new heights. He starts a family by marrying two women. And what does he do? The Bible says he loved Rachel more than Leah. I mean, he's not only a polygamist, he's a stupid polygamist. He's a prejudiced polygamist. Through his multiple wives, he sires 12 sons. And what does he do? It's Isaac and Rebekah deja vu. I mean, he favors one son over his 11 other siblings. And every time little Joseph put on that kaleidoscope-covered jacket that his daddy bought him, it reminded the other boys that he was the old man's favorite, and jealousy just ate away at their hearts. That is, until one day, they ran across a caravan headed to Egypt. The brothers sell... Joseph, daddy's boy, to the slave traders. And then they feign Joseph's death. They stain that coat, that coat, in goat's blood. And they say that Joseph was mauled by a wild beast. It breaks the daddy's heart. But it was his own fault. It was ultimately caused by his parental favoritism. And Jacob's not done. I mean, this guy's a really slow learner. When he thinks Joseph is dead, you know what he does? He exalts Benjamin above all the other brothers, and he makes him the object of his affections. He plays favorites again. I mean, when is the old man going to learn a lesson? Hey, this kind of sin, it becomes a poison in a family. It gets into the roots, and it spreads out into every limb of the family tree. Don't you underestimate the damage that favoritism can do. 
A father gets deceived. A son is threatened. A family gets busted up for 20 years. Two wives are at each other's throats. A brother is betrayed. He's sold into slavery. Another dad gets deceived. And on and on it goes. It's true. A family that plays favorites drives each other apart. Such a family can become a scary family. Now I referenced earlier the Time Magazine article, Why Mom Liked You Best. But the author draws the conclusion that this is all no big deal. That all parents are really prejudiced. That it's impossible not to have a favorite child. Parents might as well admit it. The rest of us need to put our big boy britches on and accept it. They compare our tendency to favoritism to an animal instinct. They say it's a leftover from our evolutionary past. The writers reveal how that animals also show favoritism. A penguin will kick the smaller of her two eggs out of the nest so that she can focus all of her attention on the one good egg, the one with the best potential for survival. A mama black eagle will stand idly by and watch the bigger of her chicks eliminate his competition. He'll draw his claws and shred the ribbons, his little brother. Apparently, the author of the Times story sees himself as an animal. Well, he's a nicer, more polite, more loving animal than a penguin or a black eagle. But he's an animal nonetheless. Prejudice, that's just inevitable. Well, I got to say, I disagree. I disagree. You know, the Bible teaches us that we're not animals. That we're human beings made in the image and likeness of our Creator. Our purpose is to reflect the nature of God. And here is one truth we know about God. He is a God of fairness. Paul said in Romans 2 verse 11, There is no partiality with God. He's void of any and all prejudice. God treats us equally. And He loves us unconditionally. And this is how we should behave in our families. We might prefer certain traits within a certain child, but a parent should never allow that preference to dictate how he or she treats their kids. God is a God of fairness. Christians need to love without partiality. You know, it reminds me of how Jesus treated Judas. I'm sure the Son of God, with His infinite knowledge and wisdom, knew from the start who His betrayer would be. I mean, Judas was the scoundrel. But on the night before His crucifixion, at the Last Supper, when He breaks bread with His disciples, Jesus announces the news. He says, one of you will betray me. And guess what they didn't do? No one pointed their finger at Judas and said, yeah, I knew that. I knew all along He was the bad guy. Yeah, you, you, I told you so. That's the guy. Nobody did that. Rather, they all asked Jesus, Is it I? Hey, this always amazes me. For three and a half years, Jesus lived with the knowledge that Judas would betray him. And he never once tipped his hand. Jesus never did anything to reveal his displeasure or disappointment with Judas. He never showed favoritism. If it had been me. You ain't seen such favoritism. I mean, by the time I'd get to the Last Supper, it would not be difficult to identify my betrayer. I mean, the disciples would all conclude, it's got to be Judas. Sandy always has him pulling weeds and taking out the trash. And did you ever wonder why Judas got permanent latrine duty? 
But Jesus did just the opposite. He made Judas the treasurer. He treated Judas better than he deserved. Even though Jesus knew Judas would steal from his own coffers, he still made the weasel his treasurer. Jesus never treated the betrayer you know, with any kind of partiality that would tip off his true identity. He refused to undermine any faith that might have been budding in Judas' heart. He didn't want to sabotage Judas' opportunities to repent. Judas, Jesus treated Judas with no, no partiality. He treated him no different than he did Peter or John or the other disciples. That's amazing to me. You know, sometimes favoritism in a family is based on physical factors like looks or intelligence or athletic skill or sense of humor. I mean, a parent might be drawn to a child because they resemble each other in appearance or maybe they have similar personalities or prefer the same kinds of activities. But you know, as the years drag on, another source of favoritism arises and that's behavior. I mean, parents like the good kid over the bad kid. I mean, they resent all the extra effort that ha had to be put into the troublemaker, the sleepless nights, and the court appearances, and all the complications that you, I mean, he or she caused. It's hard for a parent to keep a level playing field when one child does so much to upset the balance. And yet, I'm always inspired by how Jesus treated Judas. Our Lord Jesus knew that Judas was the black sheep of his family, but he loved his betrayer anyway. He refused to treat Judas differently than the others. You remember when the prodigal son returned home? I mean, rather than hold his rebellious years against him, the father of the family threw a party to welcome him back. At least that day, the father showed favor on the runaway. How's that for refusing to harbor a prejudice? You know, good parents are like Jesus. They refuse to play favorites, even for the good egg. They find ways to reward the noble child without blackballing and ostracizing the wayward one. You know, there's another source of favoritism in a family. What happens in a blended family when you have to parent someone else's kids? Wow, now playing favorites becomes an even greater challenge, at least to not do so. Preferring your own flesh and blood to a stepchild now becomes a great temptation. You know, it reminds me of the polygamy that runs rampant throughout the book of Genesis. You know, they ended up with blended families themselves. Kids in the same tent, but from different moms. In fact, Jacob's family included 12 sons, but from four moms, from two wives and two concubines. That's more blending than most blended families do in this day and age. While I'm on the subject, let me say a word about the strange family arrangements that you find in Genesis. You know, you read about all this polygamy and the squabbling over the rights of the firstborn, and you wonder how this can be relevant to Christians today. How do you reconcile the polygamous lifestyles of the patriarchs with our Lord Jesus' teachings on marriage and family? Well, understand, in ancient times and in oriental places, society was structured very differently than today. Two enormous social institutions dominated human affairs in the world of the patriarchs. 
polygamy and primogeniture. Both institutions seem odd and immoral today, but they were alive and well at the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now you know about polygamy. It was the keeping of a harem. I mean, a man multiplied wives and concubines. And of course, a concubine was sort of a mystery, kind of a servant with benefits, okay? Primogeniture was the exaltation of the firstborn son. The first male sibling out of the womb would rule the roost and receive a double share of the family's inheritance. And when we read through Genesis, it troubles us that Abraham takes a concubine and Jacob marries two women and Isaac and Rebekah get into this squabble over the rights of the firstborn until you keep noticing the outcome. You see, here's the point in Genesis. It always ends negatively and destructively. And the families are forced to live out their faith in imperfect situations. You could say the havoc caused by polygamy in the ancient world that we read about in Genesis is similar to what divorce has done to us today. Its effect also is negative and destructive. And we see families struggling with the same dynamics today. Kids from different parents end up under the same tent and it ramps up this potential for favoritism. See, one of the reasons that Jacob favored Joseph and bought him that psychedelic leather jacket in the first place, which led to his older brother's jealousy, was his mother. Joseph was the son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. I mean, you got to try to imagine life in Jacob's tent, man. You talk about complicated. You think your life's complicated? I mean, this was more complicated than any blended family today. Jacob, there were often times, man, when he had no easy answers. He was tiptoeing around landmines. Jacob never figured out that the unsettledness and the friction in his married life would trickle down to his kids. Joseph was the favored son of the favored mom. See the trickle-down effect? There's one certainty. Rather than contradict Jesus' teachings on marriage and family and divorce, the scary families we see in the book of Genesis only reinforce the wisdom of one man and one woman for a lifetime. That is the simplest and the easiest arrangement. And it's the best way to avoid favoritism in a family. It's interesting to me that throughout Genesis, God not only exposes the evil of polygamy, but He attacks the rule of primogeniture and the favoritism that it fostered. In a sense, the rights of the firstborn were the sanctioning of favoritism. I mean, more value and worth were placed on one child over the other child, children in the family. Did you know that a placid practice of primogeniture exists in the world today, even in our own country? The University of California at Davis, they did a study that showed 65% of moms and 70% of dads favored one child over the other. And the favored child was usually the firstborn. Firstborn favoritism is still alive and well. Yet here's what happens in Genesis. And it's deliberate, man. It's, it's deliberate. Cain gets born first, but his younger brother, Abel, ends up pleasing God. 
Ishmael is born before Isaac on the timeline. But where do God's covenants go? They go to the younger. Jacob is the baby in the family. Esau is the primogenitor. Jacob is the crook. His older brother Esau hunts and works and brings home food for the family. He's more noble. But Jacob tricks Pa into blessing him instead of his elder brother. And when he does, Esau begs his dad to reverse the blessing. Yet Isaac refuses. He is deliberate. He lets the younger receive the blessing. It's as if he senses God is changing the way families should be ordered. That God is revoking man's favoritism. In fact, the New Testament places Isaac in the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Why? Because he let that blessing stand. Even though it was obtained in a devious way, it still represented the purpose that God wanted to accomplish. Jacob rewarded the younger over the older for no other reason than faith in God's promise and belief in God's grace. Apparently the old rules of prejudice were fading, fading away. In Genesis, God did everything within His power to undermine society's endorsement of favoritism in a family. God wants families to be a place where everybody is loved unconditionally and respected for who they are. Family life needs to be free from favoritism and void of prejudice. Every family needs to be a grace place. Understand, all kinds of partiality threaten a family. Not just a parent preferring one child over another. Families can fall victim to all sorts of favoritism. Often the busy mom will spend all of her time meeting her children's needs and end up neglecting the dad. I've seen doting dads delight in their kiddos, favor them with their energy, then have nothing left for the wife. Wise parents save something for each other. Here's another type of favoritism. Has there ever been a wife who felt her husband favored or loved his job more than his family? Or his fishing? Or his golf game? Has a teenager ever felt that her parents were too caught up in their own world to care about hers? You see, favoritism happens far more than we think. What about a young wife who sees her husband go to greater efforts to take care of his mom's house than he does their own house? Or a hubby who wishes his wife was excited about getting away with him for the weekend as she is about going off with her girlfriends. You see, it's all favoritism. And it all puts a strain on a family. As a matter of fact, favoritism even comes to church from time to time. Not only does God want your family to be a grace place, He wants you to bring that same attitude to church. There should be no partiality among God's family. You recall James chapter 2? Let me read it to you. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, Oh, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, You stand there or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Indeed you have. 
Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. Notice James calls partiality a sin. And when it invades a church, God's family can become a scary family. You see, the opposite of man's partiality is God's grace. When you come to Jesus, He takes you just as you are and right where you're at. His love is unconditional. That's how we should treat each other. I'm sure you've heard it said. There are two ways to look at a glass. You can see it either half empty or half full. But there's actually a third way you can see a glass. You can just see the glass without analyzing its contents at all. You can just accept it as is. There's a glass without putting your measuring stick up against it at all. Hey, this is the cure for partiality. It's eyes of grace. During World War II, Winston Churchill, he summoned the courage of the British people with these immortal words. We shall fight on the beaches. Or we shall fight on the landing grounds. And we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. Years later, someone was reading his speech and made the comment, sounds exactly like our family vacation. Well, if you want to ensure a lot of fighting in your family, just play favorites. Prefer one child over another. Or give to one child what goes to, give to your child what belongs to the stepchild. Or love your job more than your wife and kids. Or give to your kids but withhold from your husband. Or live for your children while ignoring your spouse. Or show another family more love than your own. You do these things, and you'll ensure a lot of fighting in your family. It's the sin of favoritism. And when you turn it loose in a family, it creates a real horror show. Partiality and prejudice are able to turn any family into a scary family. So what's the cure for favoritism? Well, it's twofold. If you're the one playing favorites, you need to stop. You just need to stop it right now, right here, right now. You need to stop. You need to remember God's grace. His love is full and free. God never plays favorites. It's been said God loves each one of us if as if there's only one of us to love. That's how you should love the kids and people around you. I suppose you could say we're all God's favorites. Regardless of our looks or our smarts or our sense of humor, every one of us is special and holy to the Lord. And this is how we should treat one another, even the one another's who make up our own family. Right after the disaster of September 11th, New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, he spoke at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. He told his audience, I've learned something through all this. When everybody was fleeing that building, and the cops and firefighters and EMS folks were heading into it. Do you think any of them said, I wonder how many blacks are up there? What percentage are white? How many Jews? Let's see, are these people making $400,000 a year or $24,000? Do 
No, when you're saving lives, they're all precious. And that's how we're supposed to live all the time. Boy, I couldn't agree more. And I say the best place to start is in our own families. Love with God's heart. For God has a big heart. God's heart is big enough for everyone. And if you're the victim of favoritism, I mean, if you're the, the kid that always got the smaller bowl of ice cream, mom didn't think you noticed, but you always were one scoop short. If you were the one scoop short kid, or if mom and dad were out of money by the time you went to college, or the big church wedding went to your sister while you got married to JP. Or you're the spouse who's been neglected for the child or for the job. Or you're splitting time right now with his elderly folks that he's trying to take care of too. Then here's the cure for you. You want to know what it is? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. You need to forgive. Hey, remember Joseph. It wasn't his fault that his dad gave him that psychedelic leather jacket for Christmas. He didn't ask for it. He certainly didn't ask to be the brunt of his brother's anger and jealousy and vindictiveness. Yet God oversaw his journey from the pit his brothers dug for him to the palace in Egypt to which he was ultimately promoted. And through eyes of faith, he realized that it all had been orchestrated by God. Every step of the way. Joseph concluded, life is too short. Life is too short to hold a grudge. I need to forgive. I just need to be like Jesus. I need to do for my brothers what Jesus did for me. And forgive. And so when the day came, and those hungry brothers showed up in the court of Egypt asking for bread, Joseph was ready. He had already concluded. Oh yes, he had to gather himself a bit to get the courage to do it. But he knew what he would do. It was time to forgive. The brothers thought that their Joseph was dead, but he was alive. And he came offering to them forgiveness. You recall what Joseph said to his astonished siblings? These are immortal words. Genesis 50 verse 20 tells us, Joseph said, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. How beautiful. Here's how you deal with a slight or a neglect or a bias or an injustice or a prejudice. Are one scoop short in your ice cream bowl. Here's how you deal with it. You just forgive, man. You just forgive. Life is too short to spend it in unforgiveness. You just forgive. Though God doesn't author the harm done to us. He allows it for a reason. What man meant for evil, God uses for good. And that's true, even in scary families. Jesus is our Joseph. Once we lived as if he were dead, but he's appeared to us in the courts of our heart. We know he's alive. Now we realize that he lives, and he comes to us with forgiveness in his hands. Here's what I suggest we do. Receive it and then extend it in Jesus' name.